Well, hey, good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Hey, do me a favor. Turn your Bibles, if you have them with you, turn in them to Romans 7. We're going to be in Romans 7 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, just raise your hand. And we have people coming down the aisles right now that will get a Bible to you. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that as our gift to you. Uh, we are in a series called How People Change. And we are working through Romans 6 through 8 right now, which is some of the best teaching in the entire Bible of what is actually happening in our hearts and how do we actually grow and change. And while you're turning to Romans 7, I want to start this morning off with a story. So there's something you need to understand about my family. Growing up, my family never, ever, ever, ever ate spicy food. We were a spicy food-free family, and this is mostly a result of my dad. Uh, ketchup is too spicy for my dad, all right? Like, he just can't handle any heat. Like, if he eats chicken McNuggets, he starts to sweat. It's weird. I don't get it. But because of that, my mom never made spicy food. So I'm not kidding you. Like, I never had Tabasco sauce until I was in college. We never ate spicy food Ever. And uh, then I went to school in downtown Chicago and my friends that I met, they were like, hey, have you ever had Indian food? I'm like, what's that? And like, oh, it's amazing. You've got to try it. So we'd go get Indian food. Hey, have you ever had Thai food? And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Oh, okay, let's try that. So I, in my first couple semesters at Moody, I started to get a, a love for spicy food. And I'm like, man, if you put sriracha on eggs, they don't taste like nothing. Like they have flavor. This is amazing. And uh, so one summer I came back and I would live at home in the summers and I would work and I came back and I went to the store and I got a bottle of sriracha and I put it in the fridge and my mom's like, what, are, what is that? What are you doing? And I'm like, well, this is a bottle of sriracha. I like spicy food now. And she looked at me like, you are not my son. You are not part of our family. This is not what we do. So what my family does is they just love by teasing. So I was always teased as, oh, you know, there, there's Cal who's too snooty for our food. He likes like spicy food now. So my family would tease me about this when we were together. Well, fast forward a few years and I get a call from my mom and she's like, hey, I want you and Mary to come over for dinner tonight. Um, Nico, uh, your sister, is bringing her new boyfriend over and she really likes him. I really like him. His name's Tony. We want you to meet him. So we go over and we, you know, we have that awkward meal where the new boyfriend's trying to meet the family and he can barely look anyone in the eyes because he's so nervous. And um, we're getting to know each other, just doing small talk. And my mom, who is like trying to like make Tony feel more comfortable goes, well, hey, Tony, guess what? You're gonna like this. Cal likes spicy food too. And all of a sudden I see Tony's eyes light up. And, and here's what you need about, to know about Tony. Tony and his family immigrated to the America uh, from Mexico. And um, Mexico spicy food is on a completely different level than American spicy food. So as soon as he heard I like spicy food, I see his eyes light up. He's like, oh, do you like hot sauce? And I'm like, yeah, I put hot sauce on stuff. He goes, oh, dude, you've got to try this hot sauce. Let me go to my car and get it. <laughs> and I'm like, wait a second. You just like store hot sauce in your car when you drive around? He's like, oh, I'm never without hot sauce. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, no. Right? <laughs> Oh no. So he comes back, he goes to his car and he just gives me this bottle. It's in Spanish like language. I don't even know what it says. I just see a ghost pepper on it with skulls on, on it. Like that's the artwork. And in my mind, I'm like, I do not want to do this right now. Like I know what my limit is. This isn't going to go well. But then there's the, you know, pride in me. We're like, no, no, this is my little sister's like boyfriend. I got to show him that I'm tough. Right? So I try it. And moral of the story is I regretted it for days. And I responded in a way that was less than masculine. 
And uh, moral of the story is, um, if a guy is ever like, hey, let me go to my car and get the hot sauce, you don't want the hot sauce, right? He's got a problem. And uh, the reason I start with that story is um, if we understand Romans 7 right, um, Romans 7 is the hot sauce with the ghost pepper in the skulls. There's some real kick to Romans 7 if we understand it rightly, and here's why. In Romans 6, we looked at this last week, Paul says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So we're forgiven, God has grace for us that never runs out, but that doesn't mean that we pursue sin because that leads to shame and death. Well, in Romans 7, now Paul is going to go after the good church people. And he's going to say, and this is our big idea, that our pursuit of being good can be what causes us to reject God. He's saying, just like sin leads you to death, your pursuit of being moral and good and righteous is also going to lead you to the exact same place if you're not careful. And the reason why this passage is gonna have some kick is I think this really gets right at the heart of how we try to change and why the ways we try to change so often fail and don't produce what we want them to. So let's look at Romans 7, starting at verse one. He says this, he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking for those, to those of you that know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brother, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But you are now released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. So we serve in a new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so here's what he's doing in Romans 7. He's starting with an analogy and he's using marriage. And he's not teaching on marriage. This isn't a theology of marriage that we would go to Romans 7 for. He's just giving an example. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that a woman is married as long as her husband is alive. And it's like, when you get married, it's till death do us part. And he says, if the woman's husband dies, she's released from that uh, commitment or that covenant and she's free to remarry. That the covenant of marriage lasts for life. And then he goes, in the same way, you need to view your relationship with the law. And when he says the law, he's talking about us trying to earn our righteousness through our effort. He goes, you need to view that relationship as dead so that you might actually become married to Christ. So just how a death in a marriage releases someone to marry someone else, we've got to view the law as us being dead to it and that relationship dying so that we might marry Christ. And, um, Paul, again, when he refers to the law, he's referring to the moral law of God, which is the Ten Commandments, right? We did a series on this last fall, but it's you shall not steal, you shall not murder, you shall not covet, you shall not bear false witness, you should honor your father and mother. It's the way God revealed himself to his people. And look at verse five. He says, for while we were living in the flesh, 
Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So in Romans 6, he's like, don't pursue sin because that will lead to shame and death. But in 7, he's like, when we tried to follow the law, it actually aroused or accelerated sin in our heart. And that also led to us producing works and fruit that led to death. All right, so some of you are like, I don't totally get it. Help me understand what he's talking about. So I put up a chart. I think this will be helpful for you. Here are two ways we practically reject God. The first way is sin or rebellion. And that's the mentality of I don't want God, right? I don't want to follow him. I don't want to live according to his standard. And it's an elevation of ourself. I'm gonna be my own Lord. I'm gonna be my own King. I'm gonna do what feels good to me. I'm gonna do what I think is right. And I'm going to live outside of God's lordship over my life. And what he says in Romans 6 is that leads to death. And then in Romans 7, he's saying moralism, trying to earn God's favor with your good works. It's not that you don't want God, it's that you don't believe you need God. Hey, I'm good enough. I'm clean enough. I'm a better person than those around me. And God should be happy to have me because of the good things that I do. I'm a good person. It's believing we don't need God. It's an elevating of ourselves, which also leads to death. And here's what I want you to see. Do you see how similar rebellion and moralism actually are? Like there's one small difference and it's not even that different. Okay, and here's the problem. I think for most of us practically, when we think of how we need to change in our lives, we run straight to moralism. Right, think of the things in your life that you want to see change in. Maybe it's dealing with anger. Maybe it's uh, getting in God's word more. Maybe it's getting in shape. All right, how do we approach change? Here's what we do. We run to moralism. All right, here's what I need to do. I need to come up with a plan. I need to get motivated. I have to be disciplined. I have to be consistent. I have to make this change happen. Do you notice how many times I've said I in those few sentences? It becomes all about us and our effort and what we are going to produce in our own strength. Paul is like, this, this will lead to more issues. It will lead to a place of pride and death. And so here's what happens. Either we can't do it, and so we give up and then we believe we're a failure and we go into self-loathing and we feel bad for ourselves or we can accomplish the change we want to see and it leads to pride or arrogance or look how great I am doing. Two sides of the same coin. Paul is saying this desire to pursue morality, being married to the law actually leads to sin increasing in your heart, which leads to death. Here's the best way I can explain it. If the result of you being good is you rejoicing in your own goodness, that's not actually good. All right, can I say that again? If the result of you being good is you rejoicing in your own goodness, that's not actually good. That's not Christ-centered change. It's moralism change, which is going to lead to death. Um, how many of you are familiar with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? How many of you guys have heard that phrase, heard that story? Okay, most of us have. And I, what I found is it's a story that most people know, but very, very few people have read. If you actually read the book, it's about 80 pages long. And here's kind of a brief synopsis of the story. Dr. Jekyll is a medical doctor and he's a good doctor and he's smart and he's ambitious, but he's frustrated with himself. Cause he's like, I see so much good in me and so much potential to be great, but there's also this side of me that is lazy, that is self selfish, that is ill-disciplined and it gets in the way of me becoming everything I could be. 
So he's like, I'm going to create a potion that during the day allows me to be the best version of myself without this part of me that gets in my way. And then at night to balance it out, I'll just let the, the, the dark side of me or the evil parts of me, I'll, I'll let that go, but everyone will be sleeping. No one will see it. And I'll be a much greater doctor if I can divide myself into two. Okay, here's the problem. He greatly underestimated how powerful the evil side of him was. His evil was 10 times greater than he thought. So during the day, he would be Dr. Jekyll. He'd be this amazing doctor doing all of this good for mankind. And then at night, he would drink the potion and he would turn into a monster called Mr. Hyde. And, and this monster he couldn't control. And he was doing things that were worse than he ever imagined. He was murdering people. He was out of control. So, so now Dr. Jekyll has a problem. And so what he does is he goes, I've got to quit this potion cold turkey. The, the, the dark side of me is too strong. I can't contain it. And so he goes for three or four months and he doesn't drink the potion and he's just himself. And he's kind of keeping Mr. Hyde at bay. And he's actually doing well. Work's going well. Life's going well. He's keeping his impulses under control and he's feeling really good about the job he's doing. And the turning point of the book is he goes and he goes to a park and it's a beautiful morning and he sits down at a bench and he's reflecting at how good his life is and how good he's doing and how he's kind of gotten victory over Mr. Hyde. And then here's kind of the moment everything changes in the book. I'll read it. He says, after all, I reflected that I was like my neighbors. He's just watching people on the bench. And he goes, and then I smiled, comparing myself with other men comparing my active goodwill with the lazy cruelty of their neglect. And then at that very moment that vainglorious, of that vainglorious thought, a qualm came over me, a horrid nausea and the most deadly shuddering. These passed away and left me faint. And then as it is in its turn, faintness subsided. And I began to be aware of a change in the temper of my thoughts, a greater boldness, a contempt of danger, a solution to the bonds of obligation. And I looked down and my clothes hung formlessly on my shrunken limbs. The hand that lay on my knee was corded and hairy I was once more Edward Hyde. All right, so this is the turning point in the book because all of a sudden he turned into the monster without having to drink the potion. And he's like, oh no, this is out of control and I can't stop it. And the story ends with him taking his own life in order to protect others from the monster he has become. But do you see the moment when everything switched for him? What turned Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde in the most important moment of the story? It was actually him comparing himself to others and being arrogant over how good he was compared to everyone else. It was his pride in his good works that was the thing that eventually destroyed him. That's what Paul is saying is that when we run to the law, it actually can accelerate sin in us and this can lead to death. Listen, you can be the guy at work who's first in the office, last one to leave. You can be the most responsible. You can be the hardest worker. You can be the most faithful employee. But if in your mind, what that's producing in you is, man, I'm so much better than everyone I work with. And I hope I'm being noticed. And I hope that I get rewarded. And, and man, everyone else is so lazy and they're lucky to have me. Your heart is in just as bad of spot as your coworker who skips work and shows up late because he's been out partying the night before. Okay, but here's where this gets really dangerous. You see, rebellious people feel the consequences of their choices quicker, don't they? Right, if you're skipping work and if you're lazy and if you're not responsible, eventually you're gonna get fired. You're gonna feel the sting of your choices. But when you're good and you're moral, but your heart's in a bad place, guess what's gonna happen to you? 
you're going to get promoted. You're going to get pat on the back. You're going to be told how good you are. And it's going to increase and accelerate the arrogance and pride, which is sin dwelling in us. Look at what Paul says in verse 7. He says, what then shall we say is the law sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and that through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay, so here's what he's saying. He's quick to be like, all right, I don't want you to jump to the conclusion that trying to be good or that the law is wrong. He goes, it's not the law's problem, it's the sin that dwells in me that is so powerful that when I compare it to the law, it actually arouses sin or produces more sin in me. Look at verse 12. He says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we need to pause here for a second and we need to talk about why did God give us the law? What was the purpose? Three reasons really quick. The first reason we have the law is to reveal God's standard and design. The law shows us who God is, it shows us his character. It shows us his standard that he calls us to live to. And it shows us God's design for creation before the devastating effects of sin. Like, can we just pause for a moment? Could you imagine living in a world where people perfectly kept the 10 commandments? Like how amazing would that be? I think everyone would love it except for lawyers. Like imagine if you entered a business deal and you were 100% confident that your business partner wasn't going to lie to you or undercut you. Imagine if there was no adultery. Imagine if there was no stealing and you didn't have to have security systems and you could leave your doors unlocked. Imagine if you could drop your kids off school, not worrying that there's going to be a tragic incident that happens during the day. Imagine a world where there was no brokenness and death. Um, it's been a very, very difficult week um, for many in our community, um, our family included, um, because of the tragic passing of a student at WMC this past week. Um, our family knows that family well. It's been very, very uh, difficult. And as I've processed that with my wife and with my daughters, there's just this growing sense of like, man, I hate what sin has done to our world. And I'm longing for the day when Jesus returns and makes all things right. But like we are so infested and infiltrated with sin, it's hard for us even to imagine what God's design might look like. But he gives it to us in giving us the law. The second thing the, the law does is it exposes our sinfulness. And Paul says this in verse seven. He says, if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But look, it says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Paul's like, I wouldn't have known it was wrong to covet if the law didn't say, you shall not covet. But as soon as I knew that, it was like, man, I actually really covet all the time. And I like coveting and I can't stop coveting. And I started coveting more knowing that coveting was wrong. 
Like best way I can explain this is I remember being in high school, this would happen from time, every now and again, where I would come home from school and my mom would be like, hey, Cal, I don't know what your plans are this weekend, but I just saw a preview for this movie and it's garbage and you're not allowed to go see it. Okay, and in that moment, it was like, listen, I wasn't gonna go see that movie. I didn't even know it was coming out, but guess what I really wanna do right now? I wanna at least go see the preview and understand why my mom doesn't like the movie. And I sort of just kinda wanna see the movie right now. Like you're making it worse for me. He's like, the law has that effect, right? Then Jesus comes and he's like, no, no, you're actually even worse off than you thought you were. Because he's like, when you view the law, you think about it in actions. I'm thinking about it in regards to your heart. Right, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is like, the law says you shall not commit adultery. I say, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed it in your heart. There's an amplification, it's exposing our sin. And then the third is, is to point us to our need for a savior. Right, this is why Paul says we can't be married to the law because listen, the law can act as a mirror. It can show us our sinfulness. It can show us who God is. It can show us that standard, but it can't save us. It can't defeat the sin that dwells inside of us. And Paul's like, in a lot of ways, it just accelerates the sin. Paul says, if you're going to be married to Christ and fully embrace him, you've got to die to the law. All right, church, so here's where this message is gonna start to get hot. We need to ask ourselves the hard and difficult questions. Do we live with a mentality that's married to the law or are we married to Christ? So I've come up with four indicators that we are living with a law mentality. Here's the first one, and I think it's the greatest. I know that I have a law mentality when I can't admit when I'm wrong. Can I ask you a question individually and personally right now? I want you to make this as personal as possible. When's the last time you've looked at someone and said, what I did hurt you, and it was wrong, and it was selfish. I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? When is the last time you've looked someone eye to eye, confessed sin and sought forgiveness? And by the way, it's not fun. No one likes to do it, but I would argue that the greatest tell of whether or not you are fully believing the gospel is are you able to confess your sin? Because if you're unwilling to do that or you can't do that, well, what's happening is, is you are believing that God won't love you unless you live up to a certain standard. So we can't admit when we fail because we believe if we admit that we're a failure, then others and God aren't going to love us anymore and we're not going to be worthy. So we justify and we come up excuses and we build up this resume that says, I can't show any weaknesses. And what's practically happening is, is it's a law mentality where we are believing I've got to be perfect or God won't accept me. You know, it's funny, last week my dad's preaching, and do you remember when he said this? He's like, we wanna be a church where everyone's a little bit uncomfortable, right? We all wanna grow and we all wanna change. We don't wanna be a place where people are comfortable staying how they are. And guess what happens when my dad says that? All of you go, amen, totally, absolutely, I, I, I love that. And, and while you guys are saying amen, you know what I'm thinking about? Because I'm screwed up. I'm thinking, do we love the idea of being a part of a church like that? Or do we actually love the process of change that is really, really difficult? Are we willing to do it in small groups? Are we willing to confess sin to God and others? Because that's how change happens. Here's the next one. I know I'm married to the law when I can't forgive. Not being able to forgive has everything to do with the law because if someone sins against me, now they've hurt me, they owe me, they're in my debt. 
So until they make it right, until they seek forgiveness, uh, until they pay up, whatever we think that is, I want them to be miserable. I don't want God to bless them. I don't want them to be happy. I want them to feel the pain they caused me. All of that is law. You failed, now you owe me, now you've got to pay up or we can't be in right relationship. By the way, if you ever want to be terrified reading your Bible, do a study on what Jesus says about people who can't forgive. Because if you cannot forgive, your Father in heaven will not forgive you. Our salvation is based on the overwhelming forgiveness we've received in Jesus. But if I'm married to the law, I can't forgive others. Paul Tripp, a great Bible teacher, he posted this on social media this week. He said this, Are you as excited about showing grace and giving forgiveness to others as you are about the grace and forgiveness that the Lord has granted you? It's a question we need to take seriously. Here's the third way we know we're married to the law. Um, We believe we have to prove ourselves. I have to prove myself. And um, I'm gonna be transparent with you right now. I added this one to the list because this is a big one for me. It is so easy for me to slide into a mentality whether it be in friendships or relationships or in leadership or even in preaching, where I've got this mentality that I've got to show everyone all the time that I am good enough. And if I fall short and if I make a mistake and if I let someone down, everything in my life is going to fall apart. So I live this life where there's not a ton of rest and not a ton of joy because I'm always like, next thing, next thing, next thing, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. Um, How many of us really beat up ourselves when we make a mistake, right? Where we're talking with someone and we just say something dumb and then you leave the conversation and you're like, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I said that. That was so offensive. That was so rude. That was so stupid. They're never gonna forgive me. Like I really messed this up. I probably lost a friendship. That's an indicator that we have a prove it mentality where we believe we are only going to receive the love that we earn through our good works and it's exhausting church. Then here's the fourth, I play the comparison game, right? I call this the Edward Hyde principle, right? It's what turned him into a monster, right? He was comparing both his goodness compared to everyone else. Like this goes both ways where I can look at myself and be like, man, I am crushing it compared to Jeff Stuck. That guy's a mess and man, like he should really like do what I do and he should live how I live and he should learn from me because I've got it together. Or um, it can go the opposite way where it's like, man, I'm crushing Jeff, but I'm nowhere near as holy as Rick Maine. And I'm a failure. And why doesn't God love me like he loves Rick? Why does God make my life so much harder than his? Like, why, why can't I live up? And, and here's what destroys us when it comes to the comparison game. It kills us to have real relationships. And, and, and here's why. Because if I'm always comparing myself with Rick, then I can't actually have joy and rejoice in the blessings that he receives because it's an indictment on me. So when things are going good for him in my heart, I'm like, why can't I have that? Why can't that be like it for me? Why is it easier for him? And so I can maybe pretend and lie and pretend to be excited, but in my heart, I'm actually growing resentful for him because he's living a life full of blessing. And then when Jeff over here is struggling, like I can pretend to feel bad for him, but I'm actually kind of excited about it. Good, he's getting what he deserves and I've got it better than him because God's punishing him for for his weaknesses. Like you can't have real relationships. You can't rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because what's happening is, is we're making other people's lives all about ourselves. That's why moralism is an elevation of us and it leads to death. 
So how are we doing in those four things? Right, and I know some of you are thinking like, Cal, like I feel like this game isn't very fair. He's like in Romans six, it's you can't run to sin because that leads to shame and death. And now in Romans seven, he's like, you can't lead, like run to the pursuit of being good because that accelerates sin and leads to death. He's like, where, where do I go? What's the solution? What are we being called to? I want to change and I want to have real lasting change, but either way I go, it's crushing me. Well, church, look at me. Here's what I love about God's word. Do you know it never leaves us without the solution? God's word is truth and it gives us the way. Look in verse four. He's gonna tell us right in verse four. He says this. He says, likewise, my my brothers, you have also died to the law through the body of Christ that you may belong to another, to him who has raised you from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul says that if you want lasting change to bear fruit for God, it's not by rejecting the law because the law is good, but you have to die to the law and find your new spouse, your new identity, your new purpose in Jesus Christ. That what defines you is not your goodness and your morality, that your identity is not in what you do, but it's in who you belong to. And your life becomes about elevating Jesus, drawing near to him, holding on to him and finding your peace and rest and joy in him. So here's the solution to real heart change. It's right here. It's love motivated abiding in Christ. Motivated by love for what Jesus has done to us, we run to him and hold on to him as nearly and as long as we possibly can. And when we drift away, we confess it as sin and we run right back to him and we hold on as tightly as we can. Paul says in verse four, if you want to bear fruit for God, you've got to be married to Christ. And he's saying the exact same thing Jesus says in John 15. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Church, do me a favor. Turn to the person next to you and say, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. All change, look at me, this is important. All change motivated outside of a pursuit of Jesus is only going to lead to pride, which is an increasing of sin. And apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So this is how it plays out. I'm gonna get very, very practical. If I am abiding in Christ, guess what happens? I am going to bear good fruit. I'm going to have victory over sin and I'm going to follow Jesus, but it's not about me and my goodness. It's man, I love Jesus and I trust him. And he's proven himself to be faithful. And because I love him, and if he says, hey, this is the path of life, I'm going to follow him and I'm going to elevate him in my life. That's going to produce change and victory over sin. But at the end of the day, it's not me being like, oh, look how amazing I am. It's like, wow, Jesus is good and he's right and he's faithful and he's true. I had a guy in my office this week and he was like, Cal, Everything God's word says to be true is true and I'm experiencing it in my life. And it wasn't about the change that was happening in him. It was, man, Jesus is showing himself to be faithful even in spite of me being an idiot. Jesus gets the glory when we hang on to him because he saved us, he redeemed us, he loves us, he wipes away every tear, he pursues us, he cares for us, he forgives, he's patient. And then here's the amazing thing. Not only will that produce good fruit, he'll actually free us from the law and moralism, right? In Jesus, abiding in Christ, it frees me to admit when I'm wrong. Like, listen, it's never been about my righteousness. 
that while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. And if Christ continues to love me and pursue me and forgive, I can admit that I'm not the finished product. I don't have to build up a facade or a resume of how great I am because Jesus' love for me was never dependent on how good I am and he's still working with me and smoothing out my rough edges. I can forgive. Here's what I love about abiding in Christ. If you're abiding in Christ, forgiveness actually becomes a joy. Because when I forgive someone who sinned against me, I am closer growing to and I'm closer understanding what Jesus has done for me. It's accelerating my growth in my relationship with Christ. So I want to forgive because it's drawing me nearer to the one who saved me through forgiveness. I don't have to prove myself. It doesn't have to be about me, but my eternity is sealed. My identity is sealed. And what any of you say about me doesn't affect my reality because I'm hidden in Christ. So I can have rest and I can have joy and I can enjoy the life that God has given me. And then the last is I don't have to play the comparison game. I can exit. And that allows me to be a better friend and a better pastor and a better brother and a better son and father because now I can make it about you and I can rejoice in what God's doing in your life. And when there's hard things going on, I can weep with you. And it's not about me anymore because this doesn't change who I am in Christ. But I'm free to genuinely love and pursue and serve in a way that the law never allows me to. Church, the gospel is so much better than us trying to be good on our own merits. And there's some of you that come here today and you're exhausted because you're trying to be good, you feel defeated, the change isn't producing, and it's producing an arrogance in your heart. And what I would encourage you right now, um, confess that to the Lord, hold on to Jesus, and watch what he does in your heart. And so what we're going to do right now is, is we're going to practice this abiding in Christ through communion. And so I'm going to have the ushers come forward and we're going to remember Christ's death on our behalf and uh, we're going to eat the bread and drink the, the juice together. Jesus calls us to do this, to remember him, that we might draw near to him and grow close to him. So here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna pray. They're gonna pass out the elements. And then after the worship team leads us in a song, they're gonna lead us in the taking of the elements together. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I'm just thankful for you. I'm thankful for your gospel. Um, I'm thankful for a hard passage that really hits where we live. And God, what an amazing thing that the hearts of men and women 2000 years ago are so similar to our hearts today. It's such a endorsement for the truth and reality of your gospel. We need you, would you help us? For those of us that are stuck in sin, would we confess that, would we run to you? And for those of us who are stuck in moralism and self-righteousness, may we confess that, may we run to you. You are the solution no matter what we are facing in this room. We believe that, we trust you, we need you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.